How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. On the new podcast, American Criminal you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with L.D., Will the Thrill, and T.J. Two. <laughs> guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride this week is TJ to the deuce. Nice. What are we oh, drinking? It's anticlimactic. Uh, yeah, I will say the uh, inside baseball thing that I told you guys right before we started recording is that I dropped and I was <laughs> afraid it was going to explode <laughs> when I opened it. But, Open uh, it, 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 was a little, it was a little bubbly, but it, it was okay. Uh, this is a uh Holland Pilsner today. Okay. Yeah. And our storyteller today is Will the Thrill. Hello. Welcome back. And I'm drinking hot tea, if anybody's wondering, because I feel like I've been smacked in the face with a truck. Never actually been smacked in the face with a truck. I'm I'm betting that uh, is uncomfortable. The sheer might and strength it would take someone to pick up a truck and slap you with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's super. That's superhero levels of uh, strength. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, I feel like we do this every week, but uh, we lost. Two, I mean, we probably lost more than two, but we lost two folks in the uh, the realm of radio and music, and that was. Well, it was uh, Prince Marky D of the Fat Boys. Unfortunately, passed away. Who we were just talking about in yeah. the last couple of episodes. Yeah, and 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 it's like we we posted on the you know his uh, about his passing on our uh, social media stuff fat boys were a much bigger deal in the 80s than people seem to remember well if you remember back to the first episode they were the first choice to go on tour with madonna mm-hmm. so yeah they were a big they were. Deal. not only that but actually had a movie now we're featured in <laughs> crush groove but then had their own movie that, that being disorderlies, disorderlies, wow. yeah, Crush and did they and did commercials for I, I want to say was it McDonald's? Yes, they had a McDonald's spot. They did a McDonald's, yeah. which and, and again their their music is seen as oh this kind of lightweight and jokey throwaway. It's like yeah, but a it was a they were really popular back then, and it's not a small thing that they were doing commercials and movies and stuff because that wasn't something that you saw in the the mid to late nineteen eighties. Vis-a-vis many singers, period. Certainly not, not rappers. 
No, so in a, in a lot of ways, they kind of they kind of opened some doors. Yeah. yeah, and and then the other one that we lost was Rush Limbaugh. Yeah, and I will yeah. say that. L- let me say this about Rush Limbaugh: when he passed away, Facebook was very divided. Twitter too. Mm. Twitter Twitter was was the cesspool that Twitter normally is. I'll just say that. <laughs> That's what we've grown to. It was, it was it was the it was the the horrendous cesspool of garbage and awful people that it is unfortunately mainly turned into. Never, never change Twitter. Yeah, don't, never change. Don't ever change Twitter. That's what I read when I'm pooping. Mm-hmm. I, I will say this about Rush: uh, he brought talk radio to a different height than it was before he came on. Yep. Uh, I will say he was a radio pioneer. And then you know, while I didn't agree with certain things that he covered uh it's a human life yeah and there were people that loved him and i will never spit on that and i will never yeah. spit on anyone's he brain. had he had a wife and a brother and yeah you know lots of people that loved him and the one thing i'll say about him ha- having been a, the former radio guy that i am a he it's not an exaggeration to say he saved am radio am radio was on the was dying in the 1980s because you have to think at that time why, why did people listen to the radio primarily Music, I'd say. It was for music. Yeah. And stereo FM sounded much better than AM did. Oh, for sure. So, but that ended up being, at once Rush kind of established it as a thing, is kind of where talk radio, new, the news talk format, uh, kind of blossomed. Not only blossomed, but was extremely successful and saved a lot of small town AM stations. Um, yeah. And then, you know, put, put, put politics aside with him, which I know is hard to do because that, that was kind of his meat and potatoes. But... <laughs> You can't deny, it's like with Howard Stern. You cannot like him. You can say he's offensive or whatever. You can't deny that that's one of the most talented dudes to ever do what he did. Yeah. I, I, having done talk radio, the idea of sitting and talking for three hours a day with no co-host, mm-hmm. with almost no guests, and, and often with very few phone callers, and, and making it compelling and entertaining and informative enough that 30 million people a day listen to it. I can't even get my head around that. I could I couldn't do it once, much yeah. less every day for 30 years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's a tremendous talent and to be number 1 in any entertainment entertainment medium for 30 years is just about unprecedented. Yeah, it's true. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, and, and one last thing, if you will go ahead now and we'll do it again at the end, LD, and give our um, social stuff, we uh, we're, we want to be a tad more interactive and throw some stuff out there that you guys can um, weigh in on that we'll actually include on the show. Because we've seen how many of you listen to the show and it's a lot. And then we see how many of you actually follow us on social media and it's less. And we would like more of you to do so. Yeah, and we've had some really good conversations with people. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so so just throw those out real, if you don't mind, LD, and we'll do it at the beginning and the end. Yeah, just, you know what? Because we, we, we legitimately really want to interact with people more. I'll give the three main things that we talk on. Um, our Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven LT. You can find our Facebook at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. And our email is Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. I will put all that in the show notes and I'll actually put a link because I don't think it links up to our Facebook. So I'll put the the actual site for our Facebook page so you guys can go over and check that out yeah. as well. Yeah. And um I think maybe we're carrying on about records and pennies on the needleheads and all this stuff because we're we're to the inevitable fourth episode and uh, we kind of know what 
uh, comes in this one, and maybe we just kind of don't want to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, spoiler alert! In order to be a subject for our podcast, well, there's one obvious thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. But I'm glad you brought up the socials, E, because I've been waiting for a time to, to unfold this, because it is apropos here. You had a, a social media interaction with the Beastie Boys, if I'm not mistaken, correct? I actually I did. <laughs> yes. Um. This is wait, really? I've never, I've never heard this. Oh, this is hilarious. Oh gosh. So on my personal Twitter, I have 330 followers. Not that many. I'm not fancy like that. And I signed up like 2010, maybe. I don't, I can't tell how long I've been a member. Joined April 2009. Okay. So I joined. So not, not long after Twitter started, really. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. It, it was. Uh, it and before was, Adam passed, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the whole point. Yeah. So what, 2009? Yes, 2009. So 2009, I joined Twitter and. The first person that followed me was my friend Lawrence. Then it was like two other people I didn't know. And then the Beastie Boys started following me on Twitter. Like the verified blue check? Yes. Beasties? Blue blue check everything. Holy crap. How did they even know you existed? That is a a fine question. That's not, I'm not, I'm not dissing you i'm just like really like how did they even know you were there that's crazy now the greatest part of this is from my perspective because i if you haven't figured out by now have been a beastie boys fan for quite some time and i'm sitting there and suddenly ld stops and says why are the beastie boys following me on twitter (laughs) and we look over and sure enough it is the verified beastie boys account that's amazing they're literally the third person that followed me it's uh, my friend Jonathan, my friend Lauren, and the Beastie Boys, and then the Beastie Boys. See, there you go. Yeah. We are back to the the final final days, unfortunate final days of Adam Yauch. We've covered almost thirty years, and I realized writing this entire thing that you could break it into four distinct acts almost by decade, and it lines up almost perfectly. And now we're to the the moment none of us look forward to that final episode where we know the inevitable outcome. And I think we were discussing this previously that he's been gone a while now. It's been what nine years? Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. It's it's crazy. Which and I didn't real. Which I did not realize it. It didn't seem that long to me, but yeah, yeah like I think 2012. So yeah. So before we get there, I'm actually going to do something a bit unconventional. I think uh, TJ, you were the first one to sort of break this mold. I'm going to start with a song, actually. So we're okay. going to dive right into it. And I just want you to listen to this one. I'm not really going to give a whole lot of intro into it i just want you to hear it because time and time again we're talking about how the beastie boys reinvent themselves and are evolved and have changed over the years so i'm going to start off with this one and then we'll come back and, and jump into it so here we go with off the grid
So as we come back from that song, I just want to ask you one question. If I had played that for you blind, would you have ever guessed in a million years that that is the Beastie Boys? No, I sure would not have. Yeah. I have I have two other choices okay. that it could have been mm-hmm. ahead of the Beastie Boys. Okay. Which would be Weezer okay. or OK Go. I could see that, yeah. But OK Go, like, I feel like OK Go would even have lyrics. Or maybe even Beck. Beck, maybe, yeah. 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 It's got a really interesting quirky quality to it, yeah. but I would not, I seriously would not have pegged that no. as a BC Boy song. Nope. And yet, it is. That one comes to you from 2007. The album was called The Mix Up, and it's entirely instrumental. The whole thing. So, I'll go but ahead. It's you- funny, though, is the, the number of times, uh, Will, that you said you've talked about a song, and you said, well, originally it was an instrumental. Mm hmm. And then they end up, somebody ends up writing lyrics for it or whatever. But like, I, I think you said Sabotage originally was yep. just going to be an instrumental. That, that's how you outgrowed it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting. Uh, so again, we use this term sort of evolved, but again, the Beastie Boys just keep changing their game. It's, it's almost impossible to keep up with them. And now we're getting out of the late 90s and we're actually into the, the new millennium. We're getting there very quickly. And the Beastie Boys now have been together for almost 40 years. It'll be 30 going into the millennium. In the end of the aughts, it'll be 40 years. Yeah. Wow. So the transformation is quite obvious. First of all, you have a global phenomenon now. I mean, their albums, their music, the world tours, everything else. Bear in mind at this point, they also owned their own record label, Grand Royale, and they had their own magazine to complement it. In 1997, Mike D founded, you've probably seen this label around, the X-Large clothing line. No, I Yeah, that's Mike D's clothing line. Okay. Yeah, he started in 97. It started as a brick and mortar, and it's in the U.S., Japan, Taiwan, New Zealand. I believe now it's online only, but it's still around today. Hmm. Yeah, Extra Large Clothing, that's Mike D's label. The band had released four studio albums. Now, that does not include collections or re-releases or what I'm sure is going to be everyone's favorite album, Same Old Bullshit, with Riot Fight and Cookie Puss and... No? That, no. No, no takers? No. Okay. I'm sorry. And I, I'll, I'll appreciate you not even joking about it. <laughs> That's not going to be on my top 10 uh, albums from the Beastie Boys. How, how many total albums eight. did they have? They had eight studio albums. Yeah, not yeah. even in my top 10 for yeah. the Beastie Boys. It doesn't make my top 20. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they put out basically one album every three years. So you're talking about a band that is not incredibly prolific, but impactful. Yeah. You know, but they and, and treat their work more like rock musicians treated albums than their rap contemporaries. Right. And that's where, you know, Yauk had said that he actually took these notes from bands like Run DMC, actually, the whole sort of idea of a concept album. You know, that's what they were really working on here. And ever since they left Def Jam, they really never wanted to be in a position where they, quote, had to release an album. They said, no, we're going to do this on our terms. But, but so many bands like them groups like them felt a need to almost constantly keep something out and current and they they didn't concern themselves with that they're like no we're just we're just going to make albums however long it takes it'll take and yep which which made some people a little uh frustrated as we heard with mario c he was a little right rippled by that but Uh, it's but they treat they treated albums a, a lot more like big rock bands like aerosmith and van halen and people treated you know, we're, we're going to go in the studio for six, seven, eight, 
10, 12 months, mm-hmm. right, to, to, to work on this. Yeah, and, and instead of putting out an album, like you said, overnight, just to be relevant. Mm-hmm. And really at the center of all this transformation was, of course, Adam Yalk. You know, he was going through a big spiritual change. He was getting involved. The Melarepa Foundation was in existence. The Tibetan Freedom Concerts had been launched. You know, he was using his platform for to get a message out there. You know, and he was still the same old jokester. You know, Adam Horowitz recalls the recording sessions and said he really just wanted to hang out, you know, just do stupid stuff. That's what we did. We spent most of our time making fart jokes and ordering food, which was true to form. It was why it always took us so long to put records out. So he was a little, still a prankster there. They were traveling the world. They were touring everywhere from the U.S., Canada, South America, Europe, Asia, Australia. In fact, in one incident, they recalled a flight that they were going to Australia and they had some time off before they were going to perform. And Yauk just started talking up a couple of passengers on the plane. Turns out they were snowboarders. And before they got off the plane, Yauk pulls the two guys aside. He's like, hey, guess what we're going to do? We're going to get off this plane. We're going to go to this place. We're going to take a helicopter. We're going to go to the top of this mountain and snowboard down. So he had just figured this out on the flight to Australia. So they get off the plane and they're hiking up this mountain the whole time. You know, Harvest is thinking, you know, how did we get here? And he just attributes it to Yauk's demeanor. He said, you know, back in the last episode, he had an odd, thrilling calmness about him. Um, have you ever do you guys have you ever skied much yes i used to a lot (laughs) no i used okay i used to a lot as well i I, I would love to do it again i don't know if my knees will allow it at this point but have you ever accidentally or or maybe it intended to do it and then it was a little intimidating got on a much much bigger tougher slope than you were (laughs) equipped to deal with Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I missed getting off on a chairlift one time where I was supposed to. And your only option at that point was to get off on the top one. Oh, geez. And it was steep and ice and there were moguls in it. And it took me almost an hour. Because you're going down as slow as you can. Right? As slowly <laughs> as a person can move on skis. <laughs> no. I've been there. So it's just like, hey, let's just go to the top of a mountain and just uh, just see what happens. Like, no, that's a bad idea to me. Well, Yauk was all about it, apparently. Yeah. No, I did it one time. Uh, and I, I, on the bunny slope, I somehow managed to gain enough speed up to, while arms flinging, I took out a family of four. <laughs> And then ran into this, the rope that goes around the, you know, the, the, the rope that kept you from going into the trees and just mm-hmm. clotheslined myself, flipped myself over, and then landed in a puddle with one leg bent one way and one leg bent the other way. And I'm like, well, I'm done. That and that, that, that was the, I, I went down that mountain one time. <laughs> that was the one time I You went down the, and, and by a quote, mountain, you said bunny, the bunny, bunny slope. Bunny slope. Yeah. it was was a hill and (laughs) i did not do well i'm not exactly what you call athletically equipped i'm more crafty i'm better which is odd because you you used to be a pretty good gymnast so that's actually kind of odd but but yeah well jim jim is different jim is contained and there's a you don't have birds in <laughs> right you there's might. not frozen sh- there's not frozen shit and birds yeah and birds <laughs> and squirrels wow. and you're not fighting for like straight line with other people like that might possibly be fat like gym is an individual sport gymnastics is one person at a time right and that's, i'm okay with that 
there's too much exterior possibilities with skiing. Yeah, well, it, it, yeah, there are more people out there, but not going to happen. Anyway, so okay, so obviously at the center of all this, Adam is going through a lot of transformations, and the one phrase I keep coming back to is integrity, in the sense that everything he said he would do, he did. When they said they were going to get away from Def Jam, they did. When they said he was going to swear off their, you know, chauvinistic lyrics, they did. Remember, they even kicked Kate Schellenbach out of the band. He made a promise they would make music together again, and he did. Yeah. yeah. So he's always signed, signed her band to, to their label. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And everything with Dave Parsons, you know, he cashed every single check, literally and, you know, metaphorically, <laughs> he did that. And a lot of this was actually coming out of his Buddhist faith, and he aligned his life in ways that we never saw coming. Again, if you look at the Beastie Boys in 1986, and now they're unrecognizable. For example, Yauk had completely sworn off drugs and alcohol. 100%. Wow. He had actually an interest in a lot of firearms. He actually collected guns. He swore them all off when he took up Buddhism. Hmm. He gave them all away. And again, the chauvinistic behavior was gone. He was promoting human rights. And then, of course, he meets Tayshaun Wandu, the woman who will become his wife. Yauk was very hands-on with the Milarepa Foundation. He actually said, sometimes I feel like I get a little too much attention and the focus is always on me. There are a lot of people at Milarepa who are working on this. Sometimes I may get tired, but I have more energy to do this than anything else in the world. He took it on himself, and he actually would reach out to celebrities directly for the Tibetan Freedom Concert. Some of those include Alanis Morissette and Sheryl Crow. Uh, he even assembled a third Tibetan Freedom Concert in 1998. So he gets that together in D.C. It took place at the, uh, at the stadium, TJ RFK Stadium in D.C. Uh Yep, the Beastie Boys headlined with Radiohead, R.E.M., Perry Farrell, and the concert was one of the most lucrative in the series, raising over $1.2 million for the foundation. Ooh. Yeah, not too shabby. And in 1998, the boys are bound to go back into the studio to produce another album. Mario C. is still putting up with them for reasons we don't know, but I guess he's a very talented producer if you look at the... Uh, uh, they're, they're tolerating each other. For they're reasons, tolerating but, each other, Yeah. yeah. And again, nobody gets top billing on any Beastie Boys album. If you look at the liner notes, it always says music, lyrics, and vocals by MCI, Ad Rock, and Mike D. It's always an equal share. However, later on, Yauk actually confessed that this next album was the brainchild of Adam Horowitz. Hmm. Yep. With the assistance of a new player in the mix, a DJ named Michael Schwartz. Know what his name is? DJ Mike. Mixmaster Mike, yep. They add him, and on July 14th, 1998, Hello Nasty is released under the Capitol Records label. It was recorded entirely at Mario C's facility in Los Angeles. Now, I don't know if you guys remember this, but when this album was released, the Beastie Boys promoted it with a series of sort of late-night-looking infomercial ads. I do not remember that. No. They released him as like these fitness ads where the main player was Mike D. He would come on as this fitness guru named Jack Freeweather. And Ad Rock was Mike Cycle. And they would promote their new album as if it were a fitness routine, like an infomercial. And That's funny. A whole, a whole series, of these, which is absolutely hysterical. If you can look him up on YouTube, you, you'll laugh for hours. It's amazing. And of course, these were directed by... 
Nathan Hornblower? Nathaniel Hornblower, yep. Credit yep. as director. Again, the wacky Swiss cousin of Adam Yauk and the Uncle. Elves. Yep. Uncle, yeah, it changed. Lederhosen later yeah. wearing. I think he raised goats, like Heidi. Raised goats up in the mountains of the Alps. <laughs> yep. Hello Nasty debuted at number one, which is the second time that would happen for the Beastie Boys. And in one week, it sold over 680,000 copies in the U.S. alone. Yeah. In one week. Yeah. Okay, sorry to interrupt, but we do need to take a little bit of time out for our sponsors, and we will be right back. With that, we're getting back to Adam Yauk. So we're going to bust out a song from Hello Nasty. It's one that I feel we have to play or we will wind up in Beastie Boys jail. The video is one you love. It is, of course, Intergalactic. Yay.
Okay. All right. I mean, that's just a classic song. And the video is amazing. And the video is awesome. No notes. Yeah, nailed it, no notes. Yeah. Well, I will say that that is one of the songs with some of the most misheard lyrics of the Beastie Boys. I know ULD had said something about it. Yeah, okay. So I, I swear to you that they say we're going to make it shine like a sardine. Which would make sense because if you look at the album cover. The album cover, right. Yeah. Yeah, and but you say it's gonna shine like a sunbeam. It is a sunbeam. I looked it up. But that yeah. doesn't make any sense because so, it's sardines, and sardines are shiny because they're in oil. Well, it is like another very popular misheard lyric, and that is "revved up like a deuce, another runner in the night," which comes from Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. What does it mean to get revved up like a douche? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't... <laughs> Revved up like a dude. That is our uh, federally mandated <laughs> reference to Manfred Man's Earth Band. Of the podcast. Which yeah. which technically we got on the last episode because we had two, but I just had to make sure we were covering. I, mean, we can't, I don't want to get yeah. Our censors are listening. But uh, we do have some actual fun facts. Fun facts. Fun, fun facts. facts. So this album did something that no other album mm. has done or has been done since, if that's the correct way to say that. So this is actually the only album ever to win in the best alternative category and best rap performance category. It has never been done before. Of the Grammys? Yep, it won two Grammys. Wow. Okay. Yep. In 1999. That has that was never done at that point. It has never been done since. Now, I will give bonus facts to uh, bonus points. To bonus facts. Bonus facts to it was not the first rap album to win a Grammy. Does anyone know which one that was? Uh, was it He's a DJ, I'm the Rapper? Nope, but you're close. It is Parents Just Don't Understand, 1989. Oh, I, well, I had that. Okay, that's the album. It was from He's a DJ, I'm the Rapper. You, yeah, I was like, you were. Okay, I had the album. Close. Yeah, okay. So close. Wow. Because yeah, that's the first year the Grammys recognized. I, I knew it was Jazzy okay. Jeff and Fresh Prince. I, yep. I just, I, I didn't know if it was album or single oh. or what. And did not attend, I don't think, when they won. No, they did not, because again, the issue was the Grammys had just recognized rap at that point. And and, and didn't and I don't think televised that part. But. Correct, yes. Yeah, so there was a big to-do about that, and understandably so. Another fact is the Beastie Boys sampling everybody, nobody's safe, including the Beastie Boys. Do you remember that let the beat mm, drop? Mm -hmm. That comes from License Tale. That's so funny. They sampled themselves. Yep. <laughs> And the video is an absolute classic. That is undeniable. It went on to win a VMA for best now, video. There, now there, okay, now there's a question because they had veered more away from samples on their previous couple of records. Did they kind of go back more into that territory? Um, they, al they always did it, you know, intermittently. But again, they're sampling themselves. So that's <laughs> right. just kind of funny. Well, I just didn't know if this was a sam more sample-heavy record or if this is them still playing their instruments more or... This is them doing more original stuff, and especially with Mixmaster Mike, they were able to do samples and some original tracks. So, okay. you know, nothing will ever compare to Paul's Boutique. There's no way that'll ever happen again. Now, it was very interesting because during the MTV Music Awards, when they won, Yauk actually took some time on stage to speak about religious intolerance and the action that people are taking against it. A journalist for the BBC actually responded to that speech, calling Yauk, this is a great title, the Jewish Gandhi. I know. Right? Wow. He was, he was considered the Jewish Gandhi, even though he was a practicing Buddhist at this point. Speaking of his Buddhist faith, Yauk was actually at this point on the verge of taking Buddhist vows and becoming a monk. 
he was considering it. But wow. but as it was said best in the Game of Thrones series, love is the death of duty. Instead of taking up vows of celibacy, in 1998, actually, Yauk marries Deshaun Wandu. And on September 30th, right after your birthday, LD in 98, they welcome their first and only child, a daughter, Tenson Lozell Yauk. That's yep. a very cool name. Yeah, Tenson Lozell. Yeah. Tenson. Hey, would you like to be a monk? Uh, sure. What, what, what are the uh, qualifications? <laughs> Well, uh, you can't drink or smoke or ever have sex again. No, I'm good. Yeah, I'm going to go be over here. <laughs> I'm fine. The drinking and smoking, fine, but yeah. So the fourth Tibetan Freedom Concert would take place the following year, June of 1999, which is actually going to be one of the biggest in the series, which is hard to believe because they've all been pretty impactful up to this point. Also, 99 was like a year for festivals. Yes, there was so much there going were a on. Yeah, ton of different kind of music. Like That was the year for... Woodstock 99, Woodstock 99, which yep. was an unmitigated disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also had Lollapalooza going on. Which the Beastie Boys did. Lilith yeah. there, which I'm pretty sure they didn't. No, but Kate Schellenbach uh, did. Yes, but Kate Schellenbach did. So technically they so, did. I mean, okay. <laughs> she is a Beastie Boy. She, okay, yeah. fair enough. Uh, but yeah, like 99 was kind of a banner year for festivals. Yeah, absolutely. And this one took place on June 13th. Now, once again, they tried to rival Live Aid, and they took a multi-continent approach here, where they had the main concert. I swear to God, if you say anything about Phil Collins, I'm leaving. I was, I, I, it, was, it was coming out of my mouth. I, it, I was, I was now, teeing that bad boy up. It's funny you mentioned that, because there was discussion of what they called, quote, pulling a Phil Collins. Is that when you just suck out loud all day, every day? <laughs> Well, this, the irrational hatred of Phil it, Collins. It, it's it really stop. comical. Oh, it's hysterical. <laughs> the uh, As you know, Phil Collins played both stages at Live Aid. There was talk that the Beastie Boys were going to do both Amsterdam and Chicago, but they didn't do that. But I just want you to listen to this lineup here. Take, take a listen. So you have the Beastie Boys. No shock there. Smashing Pumpkins, A Tribe Called Quest, Pavement, Bismarcky, Richie Havens, John Lee Hooker, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Sonic Youth, Rage Against the Machine, Beck, The Foo Fighters, The Fugees, Buddy Guy, De La Soul, The Cult, The Roots, Run DMC, Eddie Vedder, No Doubt, and Yoko Ono. Eclectic. (laughs) To say the least. November of 99, the Beastie Boys released their most iconic collection. This is the definitive Beastie Boys anthology. Maybe some of you know it. The Sounds of Science, a multi-disc collection that included all the albums to date, singles, B-sides, scratch tracks, and remixes. You have that, don't you? I actually do not own that one. What? Because by the time that, I mean, I was like going all digital at that point, so. Uh. Um, the boys were planning on doing a tour to promote this with actually Rage Against the Machine, but something happened. Mike D was driving his bike down the street in New York where he hit a pothole. He upended the bike and actually ended up shattering his collarbone. Oh my gosh. Yeah, really bad. It took him months to recover from surgery, physical therapy. So the tour got scratched, unfortunately. Never happened. And he played drums, right? Oh yeah. So that's, yeah. That's not going to happen, yeah. That's, yeah, that's not going to work. However, there is one pure piece of genius on this album. The Beastie Boys rarely did covers. I think you know where this is going, LB. And I think, TJ, you asked about this one. There is one cover that I just had to play. It is a 
live version of them covering Benny and the Jets with lead vocals by Biz Marquee. This is maybe my favorite train wreck ever. Is, is this the one you were talking about? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes, this is my favorite train wreck. It, it made the album. So it's on there. I don't know how. It's not uh, even classified as music. I'm going to play it. It's an absolute riot. This one comes from the 1999 Sounds of Science collection. Again, I don't know how drunk Bismarcky was for this. All of the drunk. I, I like to think very. But here is their cover of Benny and the Jets.
played on this. How did oh, that be the first thing that you played in the first episode? How did that not make our top five songs, guys? I think we that is last. I'm, like I said it while it was playing, I'll say it again. That is last call karaoke, <laughs> drunk, bad bullshit. If you can ever, my speak, God, if yeah. you can Ooh. see the yeah. live footage of this song, please Woo. do it. Just the reaction of you know, Biz, Simon and Horowitz. Biz whose most notable musical characteristic to start with is that he can't sing. Correct. Is not even in good form. Well, I, I just want to point out the fact that just 14 <laughs> years prior, he was calling out the Beastie Boys for being, quote, bullshit. Yeah. Now he's on stage with them, clearly having a good time. Yeah. I think it says something about this who is, these guys are. Yeah. The thing is, he cracks more than oh, exit IHOP. <laughs> I mean, it is just the worst but it brings me so much joy that that you introduced me to that song maybe like three days into us dating and i'm like i don't know what i'm getting into <laughs> yet you knew everything you were getting into yep uh, so that's a fun one uh check out the compilation it's awesome the live footage is even more hysterical i think at one point adam horovitz just stops playing because he's laughing so hard um it's amazing. Actually, doesn't Biz play the piano really well too? Like he's a great DJ. He's I think a great, he's a piano player. Great. I think he played on "You Got What I Need." I think so. He does in the video because he's he's yeah. dressed up like Bach or something. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yep. Yeah. He's playing. He is playing piano in that or, God, or pretending to. I miss the eighties just so much. I know it's a simpler time. Yeah. Yes. And here we are in nineteen ninety nine. Which oh man. Which speaking of another fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact. The, the Beastie Boys, yes, were credited with the term mullet, as many of you know. Uh, their song, I Mullet had, Head. Yeah, I had heard that, yes. Which was released on the remastered version of Ill Communication, which came out around the same time. And also that song, I believe, was on the Clueless soundtrack, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Who, yep. who, I wonder who dubbed them Alabama Waterfalls. Still, the Beastie Boys were first, coining the term mullet. So, well, no, I mean, but who actually came up with Alabama Waterfall as an alternate for mullet, I wonder. a comedian, right? That is a good question. Probably. a comedian. We put that to our listeners. Go. Scour the internet. Yes. Find the answer. Google what we cannot, my children. So that same year as the close of the millennium is upon us, Adam Horowitz issues an open apology to the magazine Time Out New York, which I don't know if you read while you were there. Yeah. Well, Time Out New York. I know it exists and I know it's been around for a very long time. Yes. So the reason I bring this up is because it does become relevant later in which the Beastie Boys will have a conflict with another notable rapper. And I think some of you know where this is going. But in 1999, Horowitz issues this apology for their misogynistic and homophobic lyrics, which if we remember, speaking of ill communication, the re-release, that all started with Adam Yauch when he came into the studio with those lyrics for Sure Shot, and it totally changed the game. The dawn of the millennium would not be kind to the Beastie Boys, unfortunately. 1998 was their last album, and it would be almost four years until they released another disc. In early 2001, Grand Royale Records was forced to close. This was a time when they were leveraging a lot of debt, and music was going through that transformation to digital, but not entirely legal digital. For those of you who remember, right. what was it? LimeWire? Yep. Napster, yep. So needless to say, Grand Royale Records was one of the casualties there. They said it was a tough decision to make, but they had to because they just weren't turning a profit. So the label closed, the magazine actually switched to an online publication. And then that same year, of course, was the year of the infamous September 11th attacks on, in 2001. Obviously, this hit the Beastie Boys very hard. Uh, they were native New Yorkers. It's their home. 
and this led to writing a lot of the material you would see on their next album. So after the tragic attacks on the World Trade Center, the boys go into a writing phase that's a bit more philosophical, a bit more political, and Yauk again takes up the mantle of a cry for unity. He's looking for nonviolent solutions to what happened. He's trying to bring things into the public consciousness, and this is really all going to manifest on the next album, which would be the first album entirely produced by the Beastie Boys. Really? Yes, this would be it took the first them that one. Long? It took them that long. Yeah. Wow. Now. When they were originally looking at making another album, they were talking about going back to the kind of check-your-head, instrumental sort of approach. But Yauk felt that with the message they wanted to convey, a straight hip-hop album was going to be best. So there was some butting heads internally on this one. But Diamond and Horowitz finally agreed, and Yauk says, you know, don't worry, we're going to do the instrumental thing. Again, he plants that seed now. It comes into play later. By 2004, the first singles of this album would be released, and these included Triple Trouble in July. Fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact. As many of you know, my friend Mark and I do perform Beastie Boys on karaoke occasions. So Triple Trouble was a single in July. It is one of the two songs Mark and I will not perform. Now, one yeah. song is, is Shadrach, simply because that lyric trading for two people is pert near impossible. You need three. When it comes to Triple Trouble, we have performed it. In fact, we did twice at Sardo's. The first time we did it, it was completely flawless. We did not miss a beat. So we performed the song a second time just to make sure it wasn't a fluke. And we did it perfectly. So we have retired the song. We're never going to do it ever again. Uh, this album, To the Five Burrows, was actually released under the Oscilloscope label. Now, yeah, LD's getting excited about this and with good reason. Here's something very interesting about oscilloscope. It existed before it existed in the way that we know it. So hear me out. Oscilloscope was Yauk's sort of brainchild, a creative sort of entity that it could do music, film, a multi-purpose kind of creative space. The physical space that we now know as oscilloscope is still about four years away. So we're not there. But the oscilloscope label, as many of you know from the Beastie Boys video canon, is alive and well. So it existed as sort of a label and distribution label prior to being the space that we now know in Brooklyn, New York, if that makes sense of follow that one. Yes. So this is an oscilloscope release. So it's the first time the album has been completely produced by the Beastie Boys, nobody else. And it is a straight hip hop album according to Yauk's you know, desires. We're gonna play what is I think the most impactful track on this album and this may be tj one you're not familiar with when everything happened on september 11th the first thing the beastie boys did was again put out a cry for unity and i don't think it's more obvious than in this song right here this is one of my favorite beastie boy songs of all time is it one of my favorite beastie boy songs of oh, yeah. all time you know which one it is and again tj i don't know if you know this one but for anyone who can relate to living in new york I think an open letter to NYC. It is an open letter to NYC. Yay, I love this song so, so much. Here we go. Listen, all you New Yorkers.
unified, whoever you are. Uh, we doing fine on the one and nine line. On the L, we doing swell. On the number 10 bus, we fighting bus. You know we thorough in the burrows, cause that's a must. I remember when the boots was all pulled on flicks. And running home after school, a two-play kick. At lunch, I go to Pippi's down on Montague Street. And hit the Fulton Street Mall for the sneakers on my feet. There are a few songs that capture sort of the spirit of New York, and that's definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. Like just that rhythm of it, the sounds, everything. It's yeah. just, it's a masterpiece in my opinion. And some interesting samples there. They sample uh, the Dead Boys Sonic Reducer. Uh, the Dead Boys are a punk band from Ohio. They pull from them. And the opening, the Listen to All New Yorkers, it's the late Robert Goulet. Oh. Yep. He comes in in the afternoon and messes up your stuff yes he does that's a great commercial that is by the, the way. best commercial for was it it's a uh, nuts right yeah it was it's on a, diamond 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 almonds, almonds. Yep. Diamond. Yeah. 
Robert, your last night. <laughs> but uh, that's one of my favorite tracks of all time. I, I hear it and I do get a little homesick. It does feel that way. To the Five Bros came out again in 2004 and it had a slow start. It's not really a surprise. It debuted at number one. So it had that, but it only sold about 360,000 albums in the first week. So not quite as impactful as previous albums. However, it would go on to be platinum. So it did become a platinum album eventually. And, was, and of course, the further we get along, the less people are actually buying albums. Correct. So that's happening I mean, too. The, the more, more and more people are, are downloading it at this point, they're just just stealing it. Yeah, they're just stealing it. So <laughs> to, to be completely honest, people are just stealing music at this at this juncture. Yeah, and then we haven't quite gotten to the iTunes era where you do start purchasing music digitally. So we're in kind of a weird space at the moment. Yeah. So the album was praised for being highly mature, fun, and yet sobering at the same time. So sort of a duality there. And it had a lot of great tracks on there. Again, you have Triple Trouble, Open Letter to NYC, and then a rather hard-hitting one entitled, I'll censor this one, Hey F You. Yep, that's the title of the song. Yep. Which actually, the hook of it was sampled from a song by Funkmaster Wizard Wiz from his tune Bellevue Patient, which is... The lyric is, if you don't like it, then hey, F you. That brings up a very valid question, because a lot of people assumed that the target of this song was Eminem. So, did the Beastie Boys have beef with Eminem? Well, let's go back a little bit to that 1999 letter that Adam Horowitz wrote to Time Out. A year prior, Horowitz had actually called out Eminem. So this is in 98 for his sexist and homophobic lyrics, to which a lot of people rebutted, oh, what about the Beastie Boys in the 80s? Well, they worked very hard to change that image, and by now they were saying, yeah, we did that, but that's not us now. We don't condone it. So a lot of journalists pointed that out, and Horowitz would kind of banter back. But the interesting thing is, during all this, Eminem never said anything back. All he said was that he had always admired the Beastie Boys, and he would actually go on to pay homage to them later, saying how influential they were. So the real conflict with Eminem doesn't actually happen until 2018, where his Kamikaze album had the likeness of the License to Ill album. Do you guys remember this? No. He used the airplane, and it's pretty much the same image as he changed the words. It was a replica of that, which was done as an homage. Now, it's not entirely clear as to whether he had permission or there was kind of like the Coolio Weird Al thing. It wasn't clear again who spoke to who. So needless to say, they saw this on TV and Mike D said his phone was, quote, blowing up with text. He got like 50 texts saying, did you guys have anything to do with this? So it's unclear at this point how this happened. And Horowitz actually said that he only met Eminem one time saying he, quote, bumped into him in a bathroom in Rome. And there is a picture of the album. Okay. Well, yeah, that's... Oh, yeah. Pretty much license sales cover. So again, it's unclear as to whether or not he had permission, he didn't have permission. That's still really murky. Eminem went on to say, I think it's obvious to anyone how big of an influence the Beastie Boys were on me and so many others. So through it all, he really didn't spat back, which is interesting. So why this diss track? In fact, the target is 50 Cent. Really? Yep. This was sort of a call to all, as they put in the song, sucker MCs. I'm not going to play the song, but you can look it up. In which they're saying that people are being inauthentic or supporting those ideals that the Beastie Boys have sworn off. So it's really a call out to a larger group, not just Eminem. But 
it's believed that the main target of the song was actually 50 Cent. So interesting. One of the most notable diss tracks of the Beastie Boys canon. And there it is. Hey, F you. So over the next few years, Yauk would continue to build up this oscilloscope name and eventually a physical space, but we're still a little bit away from that. It would, however, provide a vehicle for his 2004 film, an ingenious concert film, which you can see it is available on, I believe, streaming at this point. On October 9th, Adam Yauk distributed 50 cameras to concert goers at Madison Square Garden for a Beastie Boys show. He spent the next two years reviewing the concert footage and piecing it together into just a crazy film. You can't describe it any other way under the oscilloscope label called Awesome, awesome I Shot That Shit. Awesome I Effing Shot That Shit. Oh. Yes, is the actual name of the video. I don't think the word effing appears on So that's. Course. It may not. Isn't it, that it, kind of, um, and now they didn't make a film out of it, but. Uh, isn't the Bon Jovi Bad Medicine video mostly they handed out cameras to people at a show? And I actually don't know that. It could have happened. It possible. Yeah, Sam Kennison's in it, and there's a lot of what looks like very amateurish footage in that. I, I mean, it's they, they didn't make an entire movie out of it. It's, right. It's parts of a video that they did, but you know, same same principle, I guess. Similar idea, yeah. But they took again 50 cameras to 50 people, and over two years reviewed the footage, the footage, and pieced together a video. Uh, there's actually a behind-the-scenes, which is quite hilarious, called A Day in the Life of Nathaniel Hornblower, in which the part of Hornblower is not played by Adam Yauch. Instead, the role is portrayed by comedian David Cross, who married... Amber Tamblyn. Amber Tamblyn, right? Yeah. The film was actually screened at Sundance in 2006, also at Era New Horizons and South by Southwest. It was and still is, I think, one of the most unique concert films out there. Out there. I tried to see it, but I couldn't see it in the theaters because it made me sick. <laughs> the jerky cameras, I couldn't do it. And uh, we had a limited release and then a wider release. But you got to think again, back to what you said, TJ, this is before all the iPhone stuff. So to actually give someone a camera was a very unique concept at a concert and get it from that vantage point. In an interview with Carson Daly, Daly had asked Yauk if they actually got all the camcorders back, and Yauk responded, every single one. The audience applauds, and then once it dies down, Yauk calmly says, we kept their driver's licenses. Nah. <laughs> so the fans were instructed to keep the cameras going at all times, and yes, there's a lot of footage that didn't make the cut. In fact, Yauk did say that one patron took it to the bathroom with him. <laughs> so uh, that did not end up in the final film. Uh, allegedly, there's some stuff in there that, for the most part, Yauk said the material was appropriate, but there were some things they just had to get rid of. Oh, uh, he took it to the bathroom. I bet there was some material. There was there was some material, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, that same year, Adam Horowitz would actually remarry. As you remember, he split from his first wife, Iona Skye, and he marries his partner, Kathleen Hanna. The two would actually go on to purchase a place in South Pasadena, where they currently reside. Aww. Yep, so he lives out here. And we've never run into him? We've never run into Adam Horowitz, unfortunately. The Beastie Boys would then go back into the studio in 2006, and Yauk, keeping to his word, said they would go back to their instruments. And that resulted in the track I played for you at the start of the episode. That one was off the grid from the mix-up, which would ultimately be released in 2006. It was in June of that year, and it would be the seventh studio album for the Beastie Boys. But this one, as you heard, was entirely instrumental. It's sort of a jazz, funk, and even you said kind of Weezer, mm-hmm. almost alternative rock kind of vibe to it. In fact, when they did a mm-hmm. tour, the band even dressed in sort of 70s style leisure suits. 
and they would play their instruments on stage. Yauk would have the upright bass, you know, Dime would have the drum set. So it was a, a throwback to that. And it would actually go on to win a Grammy. Wow. Best pop instrumental. So for the record, just for those of you keeping score at home, that's 11 nominations for the Beastie Boys and three wins. Better than I've done. Three and 11 is their batting average. Speaking of the tour for the mix-up, while traveling in South America, Horowitz opens his bag to find, remember that ring he threw down the train car in Europe 15 years mm. ago? Yep. It turns out that after Horowitz threw the ring down the, the end of the train, Adam Yauk recovered it and didn't tell anybody. He held on to it for 15 years <laughs> to then plant it in his bag, which really freaked Horowitz out. When Horowitz finally came to him, Yauk approached him apparently totally calm and straight-faced and said, yeah, man, you looked really freaked out, so I just wanted to let you know it was me. So That's, he had... Okay, that, yeah. that is... The quality of that as a gag is fantastic. It's unheard like, of. Didn't somebody create a Twitter account like the first couple of months that Twitter existed? They tweeted the waiting, and then like 12, 13, 14 years later, they tweeted, is the hardest part... <laughs> Oh my that, God, that's awesome. No, that was like when Twitter first started, uh, someone signed up as Dr. Frankenfurter. Yeah. From the Rocky Horror Picture Show and tweeted, I see you shiver with Antissa. And then they waited for like the 50th anniversary or the, the, the 30th anniversary or something and then tweeted the word Haitian. <laughs> yeah. Joke. That's that quality of, of joke though. Yeah, what a great gag. Again, you could put that in, like you said, there's only a handful of, you know, jokes in that pantheon, and Yauk is there with a 15-year practical joke, which is unbelievable. The mix-up, as we said, did win a Grammy. It debuted at number 15, and it was, well, again, people turning their heads and going, wait, this is the Beastie Boys? What? Who are these guys? Finally, this is the part, LD, you're going to like, 2008, the concept of oscilloscope laboratories is finally crystallized. It becomes an institution in Brooklyn, New York, where it still stands to this day. The Think Lab of Oscilloscope Laboratories was founded by Adam Yauch and David Finkel, who was previously with Think Films. They set it up in the heart of Brooklyn to be a center for filmmaking, distribution, recording, and even theater. So it was just sort of a general sort of renaissance kind of space. Arts lab. Yep. Now, the lab itself opened in 2008, and within that year... They produced or distributed, again, a combination of producing and distributing, eight films. Wow. Wow. One year. One of them is gunning for the number one spot, which TJ, you and I will talk about in a minute, but I would be remiss if I glazed over the second one, which is Dear Zachary, directed by Kurt Kenny. You know what? If you have not seen, uh, like I get teary, I'm teary now. Um, if you have not seen this film, it will crush your soul. Yes. It is one of the greatest documentaries I have ever, it's its one of the most visceral documentaries I have ever seen in my life, more emotional. It is an incredible film. And you know what? I'm going to play, I'm actually going to play the trailer. Oh, are you? Okay. Because I want to create a buzz with this. I want to create intrigue with this because I want more people to see this because it did so much good after its release that I want it to do more good. It's sort of everything a documentary should do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm gonna play the trailer now and I'll also post this on our website.
charismatic. Opinionated. Really a good storyteller. He had a presence. He had the worst possible gas. It's going to be a great doctor. Well, the phrase I was going to use had been uh, full of life. Do you know who that is? Andrew. Why did Andrew get killed? I'm an only child, and I'll get around to why this is of any importance whatsoever. When I had to say, was my son murdered? And take that into your soul. And then to know how cold-bloodedly he was murdered. He wanted to break up with her. Oh, she said, that's it, then she was dumped again. Unfortunately, she made it to Canada before they could arrest her. On the afternoon of November 7th, 2001, my sister called to tell me that Dr. Andrew Bagby, my closest friend since the age of seven, had been killed. My name's Kurt, and I'm a filmmaker. Andrew appeared in every movie I made growing up. Jesus Christ, Kurt, what do you want? I mean... No, no, I just need, I'm, I'm just... I decided to make a movie to travel far and wide to interview everyone who ever knew and loved Andrew. I just got a call from Mrs. Bagby. The abbreviated version is that bitch uh, held a press conference and announced she's four months pregnant with Andrew's baby. They can't prove it until the child's born. If it is true, the Bagbys are going to sue for custody. She named the little boy Zachary. To seek custody of the only grandson they would ever have, Andrew's parents moved to St. John's, Newfoundland, where Shirley Turner was unbelievably allowed to walk free on bail while awaiting extradition. In order to see Zachary, Kate and David were forced to stomach a civil relationship with the woman they knew murdered their only son. I now had a mission. My movie might be one of the only ways Zachary could see and get to know his father. So I pointed the van east toward Newfoundland and set off on a quest to bring a man back to life. It's a hell of a film. In fact, LD and I went to a screening, what, two years ago? It was the last movie we saw before lockdown. Yeah, so it was in, it was late in 2019 then, correct? Uh... I think it was late 2019. It was like fall of 2019. We actually went to a screening of this film with the director in a Q&A. And when the film first came up, the Oscilloscope Laboratories logo came up and people applauded. And that was a really cool thing to see. So that was one of the first, I think, most impactful films distributed by Adam Yauch's company. I'm sorry, correction here? Oh, it was early 2020, so it was... It was the last movie yeah. that we saw before It was winter, of, it was January 2020. Yeah. yeah. The last movie I saw in theaters before the lockdown was Lethal Weapon 3. <laughs> Jeez. So can I, can I talk about this yes, film? Yes, you can, yeah, and we'll so, get back to it. Sorry, I, I, I had to, like, collect myself because that film hits me every single time, but we got to see that with the director. Which is really cool. And... Um, Please, guys, I, I know this is like the middle of the, the Adam Yauch episode, but please go watch that film. I think it's still streaming. I know you can get it on Amazon Prime, but uh, as a postscript, laws were changed because of this film. And it's one of those films that just, it hits everybody a different way. But uh, I have seen it many, many times and I still ugly cry <laughs> at the end of it, even though I know how it gets resolved. And having gotten to speak to Kirk Kenny, who is an incredible director, and God, I wish he could do more stuff. 
he I think he was in the middle of doing a documentary series on Huey Lewis in the news. Yeah. Ah! Before, yeah. Before before uh the shutdown happened. Please finish it. I know, right? So uh you know, please give that movie some love because it is it is one of the the greatest documentaries I think of our generation. And you could argue that Adam Yelk was instrumental in getting it out there. I mean, his yes. company distributed the film. Yeah. Sure. Gave him a platform. He was an independent now, filmmaker. But yeah. now the other movie you were discussing, Will, is... Yeah, the other gunning for the number one spot. Yauk actually wrote and directed this one. It covered eight NBA, well, would-be NBA players sort of coming up during this tournament in Harlem. And they include some notable names. Kyle Singer, Michael Beasley, Kevin Love. And if I Remember correctly, I think Beasley and Love are still active, at least as of the current season. No? I love, yeah, Love definitely is, yeah, and I think Beasley is. Yeah, uh, which Adam Yauk, bear in mind, he directed not only the covering of the players, but he directed the game footage itself. So you're talking two very different approaches here. Sure, definitely. Uh, and it definitely got some buzz. You know, it got to the festivals. And the following year, Oscilloscope would gain, would, uh, gain some more notoriety by distributing a well-known, more well-known film called The Messenger. I don't remember that war film that starred Woody Harrelson, Steve Buscemi, and Ben Foster. So they were sort of gaining traction as a film distribution company. Mm-hmm. That's the uh, peak of the mountain, guys. We're about to crash over the edge here. While on tour, Adam Yauk noticed a small lump in the back of his throat. He thought it might be a swollen gland, thought it might be, you know, a flu. So he calls his doctor and the doctor says, okay, you're going to come back. We're going to take a look at this when you get back to the States. So he goes back to New York. Yauk was diagnosed with parotid cancer. For those of you unfamiliar with this type of cancer, it affects the salivary gland at the back of the jaw slash throat, you know, right back where your jaw kind of meets your neck. Yeah. That gland is, he was diagnosed with cancer. Now, it was caught early. Yalkin Horowitz actually released a statement and it went on YouTube because at the time, remember, YouTube is now coming into the public consciousness. He explains that his diet, he tells you cool as a cucumber, he's diagnosed with cancer. It's highly treatable. In his own words, he says, it is a little setback and a pain in the ass, but it is treatable in most cases, and people with it have continued with problems like it. So it's unclear at this point where Yauk actually stood on this issue, because he is a practicing Buddhist, which is largely a take your emotions out of it sort of approach, you know? Now, this cancer affected another prominent celebrity, TJ, you might know this one, Tony Gwynn Jr., yeah. who passed away. Yeah. from the same cancer so this but now, in to- now in tony's case I-, I believe he was a smokeless tobacco user for a goodly chunk yes. of and, his and, life yeah and that's the thing now yauk never used never chewed tobacco for those who don't know to- tony gwynn is just probably the best hitter in major league baseball history i think he's the highest average ever right make contact and put it in in play hitter ever does he have the highest career average of all time i i don't know but they, I, I saw a stat just the other day, actually, that in his career, Tony Gwynn faced Greg Maddox something like 102 times and struck out zero. Yeah, which is something the Mets couldn't do. Struck out, <laughs> that, faced Pedro Martinez 98 times in his career yep. and never struck out. Yeah, it, you've never seen if you go 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 find and he was a he was a hell of a basketball player, incidentally, in college. But um, in his case, of course. Being a, coming up a baseball player, I think you know smokeless tobacco was a big part of his his life. So, and that's where the sort of medical community doesn't have answers for this because Yauk chewed gum a lot. 
So one yeah. of the theories was, was it aspartame? Was it, you know, however, doctors couldn't find a link to it. Now, did, so, he, didn't, now did he smoke? He did earlier, but he quit. Remember, he swore it off when he adopted Buddhism. He swore off alcohol, right. smoking, everything. Okay. Well, I didn't know if he was yeah. a heavy, you know, because we, we just came off a series about Eddie Van Havelin. He, of course, mm-hmm. heavy, heavy smoker for 40 years or whatever it was. Yeah. I They don't talk much about it. I think he did smoke back in like licensed ill days but by this right. point he's worn it off so he was okay. not doing it currently yeah. and so he takes a typical approach he undergoes radiation therapy and he actually has surgery on the gland so the band is planning an album and a tour both of which are going to be pushed back for now and also yauk turns to some more eastern approaches to healing and at the behest of his tibetan doctor because he has a new york doctor and he has a tibetan doctor he actually goes 100 percent vegan he eliminates meat he eliminates everything so he's trying different approaches here during all of this they do go back into the studio to record what will be their final album now the name of this album actually gets changed a couple of times the album was released as the hot sauce committee part two originally the working title for the album was tadlock's glasses which for those elvis presley fans harkens back to an idea that elvis gave a expensive pair of sunglasses to his driver whose name was tadlock okay. so a bit of a deep cut there also there's the what happened to the hot sauce part one well there's the real answer and then there's the beastie boys answer because one of the problems with the beastie boys in interviews is you kind of have to sift out when they're joking and when they're not in an interview with a french television station which this is how it starts adam harwood sits down in the chair and they say are you ready he goes yeah absolutely okay we're rolling and he goes hold on i have to put a teabag up my ass and leaves that's the start of the interview um it well, doesn't really I, get i was gonna say just to bear that out, <laughs> how far they would go with that. You know, uh, at some point here, fairly recently, Rolling Stone redid their 500 greatest albums of all time list because uh-huh. they wanted to make it more inclusive or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they reached out to a bunch of artists and, you know, give us your top 100 albums. And I think they, they went to Ad Rock and he didn't give them 100. It was only 50. So, mm-hmm. but that, I guess that, that was, they took it anyway. And so Rolling Stone starts looking it over because, gosh, I've never heard of this album. And they start looking it up. For, like 48 of the 50 albums were just things he made up. They weren't even yeah. like, it was like like the greatest hits of Monster Slaw and the Somebodies. It was like, he just made stuff up. And, and it was like 49 of them were made up. And then like at number 28, he put a Phil Collins record. Yeah, he, uh, it's all over the place. And during this interview, they claim that the Hot Sauce Committee Part 1 was recorded on an expedition to Antarctica studying microbiology, where, according to Mike D., the ship had a laboratory and a recording studio. So there's a lot you got to sift through here. And this interview, by the way, if you can see it, it's with a French television station, is utterly hilarious. I don't think they ever say anything truthful during the entire course of it. We think, though, looking back on it, that that may have been sort of a a jokey cover-up for a more serious situation. The boys actually started recording material for the hot sauce committee part one and that was supposed to come out in 2009 which if you're looking at the timeline lines up with the aux treatment surgery radiation therapy and the entire album actually gets shelved and never sees the light of day so one of the things you and i tj have talked about is what would have the beastie boys released apparently there's an entire album there that's now somewhere but never released uh, what I will share with you, though, is perhaps the most notable track off the album, and this is one I think LD you're a fan of. The video is nothing less than spectacular. The album, The Hot Sauce Committee Part 2, was released on May 3rd, 2011. And I think you bought me a copy, if I remember correctly. I probably did. Yeah. 
here is the, I think the most known release off it, Make Some Noise. So there's Make Some Noise off the Hot Sauce Committee Part 2. Now, I'm going to say, I actually like the music video better than I like the song. The video is great. Because when you listen to the song with the video, it's you're splitting your attention span mm-hmm. when you're just focused on the song. The song is still good, but it, it has less weight than when you see it. 
with the video. Yeah, and also if you hear Yauk's voice, I mean, it's known for being kind of husky, and it sounds even strained at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, you can hear it starting to to go. Uh, here's a quote from Mike D on their final recording session for the Hot Sauce Committee Part 2. It was a good thing for him. He was doing treatment that probably made him feel like crap. And by being active and feeling involved, it was something he could feel good about. And he could be around people who he was comfortable feeling or looking like crap around. That was the final recording day of the Hot Sauce Committee Part 2. And they didn't know it at the time, but it was the last recording session the Beastie Boys would ever have together. Now that same year, which is 2012, Adam Yauk received the Charles Flint Kellogg Award from his alma mater, the Edward R. Murrow High School. And on April 15th, 2012, the Beastie Boys would finally be inducted after almost 40 years into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Which is interesting because, if you remember, Adam Horowitz's father-in-law was Donovan. He got inducted on the same night. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So fun fact. He waited a really long time to get in. Now, the ceremony would be attended by Michael Diamond and Adam Horowitz, but sadly, not Adam Yauk. The problem with this type of cancer is that it's, first of all, extremely rare. Very few people contract it. And although it's very local, that's part of what also makes it dangerous. Even though Yauk underwent radiation therapy and surgery, the cancer had spread from his salivary gland to his lymph nodes. Mm. It was getting into the lymphatic system. His condition was so poor that he could not attend the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony. So Mike D and Ad Rock accepted the award on his behalf, and they read a very touching letter in which Yauk thanked his fans, his family, and everybody. And you can look it up online. It's a very, very touching moment. May 4th, 2012, the world said goodbye to Adam Nathaniel Yauk. He was survived by his parents, Francis and Noel, his wife, Tayshan, his daughter, Tenzin Lozell, and his bandmates, Adam Horowitz and Michael Diamond. Adam Yauk was only 47 years old. Wow. And his daughter had to, how, was not, couldn't have been very old. No, no. Following Yauk's passing, this is going to absolutely blow your mind. Sales attributed to the Beastie Boys. Again, this is digital, everything in person. After Adam Yauk's passing on May 4th, six Beastie Boy albums and licensed to ill, so seven total, re-entered the Billboard Top 200. Wow. Due to sales. Nice. 55,000 albums were sold. Their digital downloads went up to 151,000. Now, here's the craziest part about these numbers. Billboard's tracking went for two days. So that is from May 4th till May 6th, ladies and gentlemen. Holy Wow. He dies on the 4th, and by the 6th, those are the numbers coming in for the Beastie Boys. Wow. That is unreal. His last will and testament proved to be very convoluted and, in fact, is still being reviewed at the time of this recording, which is February of 2021. Almost nine years after his passing. Yep, it's still being reviewed. Well, there's some articles in it that are, to say the least, a bit unconventional. First of all, the entirety of Adam Yauch's estate, which is considerable, as you may have imagined, I mean, if nothing else, he was a Beastie Boys and, and sold over 40 million albums, it was left into a trust but there was a public disagreement on actually who would care for his daughter in the event that his wife passed away. So this is where it gets strange, because in Yauk's will, he maps it out that the guardian of his daughter in the passing of his wife would depend on the year. 
this is very strange. In an even year, the appointees would be Nolan Francis Yauk. In an odd year, it would be Tayshan's parents, Sonam and Shuki. So that's a weird one that family lawyers are still trying to iron out. Like, can he do that? Does that make sense? Another provision that's still being debated is the use of BC Boys music in advertising. Now, Forbes published an article in which they included the exact phrasing from Yauk's last will and testament, which says, and I quote, in no event may my image or name or any music or artistic property created by me be used for advertising purposes. Okay, so Forbes goes on to call this opening quote a can of worms. Now, it can protect his likeness. Okay, that's one thing, but it doesn't exactly say what happens to the other band members, Mike D and Rock. And then, and then you also have copyright laws you have copyright laws at, at a certain point and i i, I think our copyright laws are, are horrendous and stupid but hmm. at a certain point you no longer own your own work correct so hmm. it's like well then how can you you can't just definitively state in your will well you can never use my music ever in a commercial it's like yeah that's not it's not going to be yours or your heirs after a while right and that's what they bring up because Bear in mind that, albeit limited, the Beastie Boys did have some commercial use of their music. For example, the Destiny 2 trailer had Sabotage in it, which was already in existence by this point. So again, how does it affect him, his heirs, his other bandmates? And also, for advertising purposes, in a legal sense, is not entirely clear. I mean, I'm sure there are loopholes. I don't know what they are, but it created a lot of problems. And also... Well, you can have things like PSAs, mm -hmm. stuff like that, that are not considered straight advertisements. Right. You have the ASPCA commercial with the Sarah McLaughlin song. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Again, yeah. But that brings horrifically up depressing. Oh, Jesus, it ever... So this raises a lot of questions. Now, for the record, when this first happened, because the bandmates were known of were made known of this, uh, neither Horowitz or Diamond opposed to anything. They they were saying, okay, these are his wishes, you know, let's let's do it. It became controversial actually much later. In 2012, uh, the Beastie Boys would actually settle out of court a licensing for their song to the tune of two million dollars. So that got settled around that time. Coincidence, don't know, not a lawyer. And also in 2016, when Paramount Studios released Star Trek Beyond, they used Sabotage in the commercial. So we really don't know. Which is weird yeah. because wouldn't they use Intergalactic? <clears throat> I don't know. You missed it, Star Trek. You missed <sighs> your one chance. So I'd love to get some lawyers to weigh in on this. Maybe Legal Eagle, if we can tag him in on this. Seriously, DJ uh, from Legal Eagle. Yeah. We just, we just want to talk. Because he is a New York lawyer, right? We just want to talk. Yeah, and this is New York law. It's yes. in New York, so. Another great YouTube channel, if you guys have not seen really it is. yet. It's, it's called Legal Eagle, and it is fantastic. So his will is actually described by legal professionals as, quote, confusing. So take that for what it's worth. The final resting place of Yauk's remains. Nobody knows. Undisclosed, yes. It is believed that Yauk kept it private to his family and those closest to him. Following his passing that year, the band Fish actually played at the Saratoga Performing Arts Center, and they played Sabotage in his honor, Aww. as a tribute to Adam. Fish is a band I always forget is incredible until... Oh, I, yeah, they're great. I just randomly find Rift somewhere in my apartment mm -hmm. and be like, oh, yeah, Fish was great. So you may be asking, how can you pay your own respects to Adam Yauk? Well, 
there's a lot of things you can actually do. First of all, Yauk was big on getting involved and causes. So he actually says, you know, in previous interviews, you know, he talked about what he was doing with Melarepa, but then saying, you know, do what you can on a local scale. You know, there are ways for you to get involved. There is actually on the Oscilloscope Laboratory's website, a virtual tour hosted by Adam Yauk. It was filmed entirely before his passing. And it's actually called The House That Yauk Built. It became available in 2018. In the fight for your rights slash make some noise video, there is a special credit given to Francis Yauk, his mother. Yeah. So we have a copious amount of videos, movies. Unfortunately, Noel Yauk would go to pass away. He's no longer with us, but his artwork is actually on display. And if you remember, it was Adam who brought him back to painting. Right. And his artwork is on display on a number of places in, in New York. You'd have me in the galleries. Or you can just go to the park. In 2013, the city of New York officially changed the name of Adam Yauk's beloved Palmetto Park in Brooklyn to Adam Yauk Park. Oh. Mike D. and Adam Horowitz say in the closing of their book that whenever they're dealing with any kind of difficult situation or quandary, they stop and they ask, what would Yauk do? <laughs> and I'm going to leave us on a discussion for today. But before we dive into that, I do just want to say that with everything we've covered, I hope you see Adam Yauk for truly being a heavy hitter. I'm going to make a claim right now that I've made before with LD. I think we lost a potential EGOT on May 4th, 2012. I agree. Which for those of you who may not know what abbreviation, it's a winner of an Emmy, a Tony, a Grammy, and an Oscar. Mm -hmm. I didn't do that in the EGOT order, but you get the idea. Give him 10 more years, you know? He, could, he may have gotten there. You know, we'll never know. He was only 47 when we lost him. So our final discussion is, again, we encourage you to go back, check out the catalog. There's so much there for the Beastie Boys. Again, if you're into film, music videos, music, hip hop, again, how do you classify their music? It's so many things at once. There's a dearth of material there. I gave us the unenviable task for this final episode to highlight our top five Beastie Boys studio albums. And we do, again, have a write-in contribution from my friend Mark, who was gracious enough to put in the time and the effort to do what he called absolute torture to come up with this list. So we do have lists now of our top five favorite Beastie Boy studio albums. Uh, LD, do you want to kick us off? Uh, I don't have mine in any order. That's okay. Uh, also, I forgot we were doing this and oh, I have right. been sick today. <laughs> and so I'm just going to read off the we'll do yours. page. And then we'll do TJ, um, then I'll read Mark's on mine. Yeah. Okay. So in my top five are uh, Ill Communication. It's a good one. Uh, I, I mean, I know what my number one is, so I'll, I'll save that till mm -hmm. last. But these aren't in any particular order. But yeah, uh, ill communication. Sabotage, sure shot, yeah. To the five burrows. Great album. Uh, Paul's boutique. <laughs> Hello, nasty. And my favorite is License Tale. Okay. And, and then my 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 reason for that number one, they've only got eight albums, and uh, those eight albums, I think I've listened to six of them. So it, that was not very hard for me. It wasn't like picking my children, but License to Ill was the first, the first outing for the Beastie Boys for us. It wasn't that weird, loud noise that it sounded like two cats having sex in a junkyard. <laughs> What's it called? Uh, Same old shit. Bed, bed, oh, well, that was a remake. I mean, the original whatever. would be... A great on Mojo. Yeah. yeah, whatever. Whatever that is. Hollywogs do. Was it? Hollywogs do. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That. Well, yeah. Uh, so that's not going to be number one for me. So Licensed Ill was, it had incredible songs. Is it Paul Revere, She's Crafty, Girls, Fight for Your Right. Like all these amazing songs on it as a first outing. And it's what I grew up on. 
So that's got to be number one for me. All the other ones, I, I love individual tracks on them. Paul's Boutique is interesting as a as an album on the whole. Like it's it's uh, innovative and interesting. I just think it's kind of a, in the words of Fumier in uh, Phantom of the Opera, it was a lamentable mess. <laughs> so To the Five Burrows was great because it's got three of the best songs from the BC Boys at, in a very mature well put together, well thought out. It, it's a masterpiece. It was them yeah. growing up. It wasn't licensed ill. It wasn't that like kindergarten Casio keyboard with very freshman lyrics, mm-hmm. which were fun and awesome and hold a very close place in my heart. To the Five Burrows is mature, well thought out, well put together. And even when they do the diss track of Hey F.U., it's done in the style of Eminem and it's brilliant <laughs> and I love it. But then you have Open Letter to NYC, mm-hmm. which, you know, that that's a very important song to me. But then you have Check It Out. Mm-hmm. Which is, we're going we're gonna to close out with that one. Yes. Yeah. So Check It Out being one of my, I mean, you guys know that's from our discussion last week, two weeks ago. That's probably one of my favorite songs from the BC Boys. So those, those, are, my, those are my top two. Cool. Awesome. TJ, what you got? Okay, I'll go through mine pretty quickly. Number five, I'm going to go with Check Your Head. Nice. Number four for me, Hello Nasty. Number three, Ill Communication. Uh, number two, Paul's Boutique. And number one, License to Ill. Yeah. And and, and it's, it, especially with the first three I named, it's just that I just, there's not a particular reason other than it has, those have the most songs that I happen to like. Um, Paul's Boutique. As I've said in part one or part two, whenever we discussed it, when it came out, I was really disappointed by it because mm-hmm. I was 14 years old and I wanted Fight for Your Right to Party and Brass Monkey part two. Um, but with a more mature ear, you go back and listen to it. It's groundbreaking. Um, there was nothing else like it. Legally, there almost couldn't be. <laughs> um, and, and, and in terms of how much more expensive it got to sample uh, other people's work, that 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 tapestry of hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of samples layered on top of one another um the 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 tapestry they wove out of little tiny beats here and i i don't something from mr ed there (laughs) and a surface noise from this and a delivery man bringing a check to their uh stuff just to weave that into that this this lush tapestry is quite an accomplishment and an achievement and and it sounds a lot better to me now with a slightly more mature ear my mature ears go f themselves when i get to number one yeah license to ill yeah (laughs) because license to ill is none of it's not mature in any way i don't care that was my introduction (laughs) to them i thought they were incredibly cool when i heard brass monkey and no sleep till brooklyn and fight for your right to party and stuff like that and i know that they ended up kind of pushing back against that image and kind of rejecting it and, and becoming more mature. And I understand that, but it's still a, an undeniably great album with very catchy sing along, awesome songs. I don't care that it's immature. I am myself. So it's, it's just, it's an all timer. There's really yeah. no, there's really no other way to look at it. It's a, it's an all time great album and uh, it's my favorite. Yeah, and again, I don't think there's a way to say you're wrong, you know, I think a lot of this is highly emotional and also just what you're in the mood for, you know, sometimes you just want that Casio keyboard and, you know, the the cheesiness of those lyrics, 
Sometimes it's just what the doctor ordered. Uh, Mark's list here. Again, thank you, Mark, for these contributions. I am going to close out with a little tribute that uh, Mark and I did to MCA when he passed. Here are his top five in order, mind you. Licensed Ill does make the top five at number five for pretty much the same reasons you all mentioned. Number four, he went with The Mix-Up. And again, great album. Totally different. Grammy winning. Are you in the mood for an album of instrumentals? I think that's the question. So he picked that as his, quote, dark horse choice. Number three, To the Five Burrows. Number two, Hello Nasty, which I think is because he's his favorite Beastie Boys at rock, so no arguments there. Mm. And uh, number one, Paul's Boutique. So I feel like by the time we get to my list, we've heard all of these. We've just sort of rearranged the order. No one picked some old bullshit. I'm really surprised at all of you. Or Pollywogs too. Or Pollywogs too. I, I, you know, I just felt, the I same felt they were too obvious. <laughs> I felt they were too obvious. Yes. Uh, I'm going with number five, Hello Nasty. Again, Grammy winning. No one else has ever done that before. The only one who ever came close was actually Beck. But Beck, while having rap elements, he couldn't classify as a rap artist. Uh, so number five i've got hello nasty number four check your head i love that album again such a unique piece in that canon but so is everything i think check your head is is brilliant and when you're in the right mood for it nothing's gonna beat it i'm going with number three license to ill had to make the list uh again i realize that a lot of people put it at number one and i cannot argue with that sometimes it's just what you're looking for number two to the five burrows that was kind of a resurgence of the beastie boys for me 2004 that album was again i'd like the beastie boys but for some reason that one triggered my going back to their whole canon and seeing everything they had to offer and i have to go with paul's boutique at number one it's such a unique again mess yet masterpiece it's just you could never do it again i think that's why i like it so much it is so rooted in that time that it could never be duplicated in fact miles davis said it was one of his favorite albums really yes he did yeah so i'm going number one beastie boys album paul's boutique uh, before we do our socials, I will put that out to our listeners. What is your favorite Beastie Boys album? What do you like to listen to? So much to choose from. All so different. And again, it's a great way to appreciate the work that Adam Yap did. Well, I think that was a fantastic episode. Thank you so much, Mr. Will the Thrill. Thank you. Adam Yauk, we have learned a lot. And again, we're going to say this at the end of just about every series. We could do an entire podcast on these people and miss stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we've missed something that you think is important for us, come share it on our socials. And so if you think that we're doing a great job, you want to throw us a little bit of money, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. Our Twitter is rock and roll LT. Our Instagram rock and roll heaven LT. Our Facebook rock and roll heaven pod. Still not saying our website. And you can email us rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. If I said those too fast, they will be in the show notes. Please feel free to reach out to us at any time, day or night. And please make sure you check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. That's it for this week. Everybody will say goodbye after this. But we will be starting a new series next week. And it will be on the Thin White Duke, Mr. (laughs) David Bowie. Oh, nice. I have been living in Bowie land for a very long time now, and I think I'm turning into David Bowie. It's not the worst thing in the world. No, it's not. Yeah. It's not. So uh, thank you guys for checking this out. Make sure to check us out next week. And from all of us here at Rock and Roll Heaven, all of you out there in Radio Land, have a great week. DJ, you want to say anything to our audience? Bye, everybody. 
And we'll close out. The last thing I left before our list was how can you pay respects to Adam Yauch? Well, we're going to flash back to late uh, mid-May 2012 when two boys in a karaoke bar in Burbank paid their own tribute with one of our favorite karaoke songs and one of my top Beastie Boy songs of all time. Speaking of Check It Out, we're going to go with Check It Out from To The Five Burrows. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Adam, for all your contributions. And we will see oh, you next week. What, you, what are you saying? Oh, you trekkies and TV addicts. Yeah. Don't mean to this, don't mean to bring static. Or oh, you Klingons in the fucking house. Grab your back street friend to get loud. Bullet doors off hinges. Grab me with the pinches. And no, I didn't retire. I snatch it off with the needle nose pliers. Black kids will overhaul. What you want you never seen before? Riding in the glazing. Like Lord Keaton on your achieve the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? 
What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.